Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us. This week we're joined by award-winning documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our recent sponsors in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, let's go into just politics uh, today. And the Republican voter suppression efforts just get bolder and bolder. They were thwarted in Texas when Democrats walked out of the legislative chamber to block a quorum, but that's only a temporary victory. Uh, they're going to they're gonna come back. And we've said time and time again, the most important counter is for the Senate to pass so-called S-1, which would overrule many of these restrictions for federal elections. But I think right now, you know, we can't count on that happen. Two groups are really critical to watch, business and sports. It's fine for business to say they're all for voting rights, and I know they want their tax breaks and all that, but are companies now going to be pressured by employees not to locate new facilities in Texas or Georgia? Are they going to cancel conventions in states that uh, direct voter suppression efforts against blacks? And in sports, are the two semifinal national football championships games going to be played in Texas and Florida at the end of the year? Major League Baseball took... Uh, the game out of Atlanta, that's a predominantly white sport. What's going to happen in football and basketball? Uh, the Super Bowl is scheduled for Phoenix in 2003. If this is business as usual, the vote suppressors will win. Yeah. yeah uh, and, and you're right. And, and employees are, are, are the trick here. And so if you know someone or you are employed by Fortune 500 company, and the key thing is let management know. And if you're in management, let other people in management know. And anything that you can do, because this is, people say, and they say it justifiably, that the entire democracy is at risk here. Yep. I mean, this is like a, this is a threat in many ways, like a war is a threat. Because once people lose faith or feel like that they're being, ex, you know, legally excluded from participating in our democracy, that's not going to end well. So I, I can't be more concerned about this. Um, it, 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 it literally, it's not, it's not an exaggeration. You know, too many people that say this. This whole, this whole thing could go to hell in a handbasket and fast, fast. Yeah, it really could. And there's not just Texas and Florida and Georgia. It's being done in 12 states. And the efforts are clear. And those who say, well, in the past, these efforts at voter restrictions haven't made that, that big a difference. First of all, you don't have to make much of a difference, uh, i.e. Georgia or Arizona or some other places last year. But secondly, they are more surgically uh, directed this time. Uh, and they only back down when they get caught. In Texas, they got caught. At one point, James, they said that on Sundays, you can't vote until 1 o'clock. Now, why did they say that you can't vote till 1 o'clock? You can, you can get booze at 10 o'clock in the morning. So why can't you vote to one o'clock? And, and the whole intent, of course, was to try to thwart souls to the polls, which is used by black voters. They got hit on that and they backed down, but they, they won't get hit on everything. It, it, was, it was a typo. It was a typo. <laughs> yeah, yes. They were arguing and debate about, well, you can do something after yeah. one o'clock. I mean, right. it, their voters, there's something that, that they have that Republican politicians have 
that Democrats do, politicians do not have, and it's a huge advantage. It's a huge advantage, and it, the advantage is this. Their voters demand that they be lied to. If, if a Democrat lied to Democratic voters, Democratic voters would abandon them. If a Republican politician told the truth, the Republican voters would abandon that politician. That It's a huge advantage when you're in any kind of a fight that your, your base vote demands to be lied to. They like it. They like it. Yeah. And so well, in any debate, that gives them an advantage that, that a Democrat doesn't have. What you said is right. Democracy is at stake. And of course, why they are doing this is because they know if you look at demographics in states like Texas and states like, like, like Georgia, they are very much against the entrenched Republican interest. They know that. But they weigh, so the way they're going to keep, keep in office, the way they're going to keep winning is they're going to cheat. And that's what this is. This is cheating. <laughs> Liars cheat. You know, you can, you can, if, if somebody is a liar, you, you feel free to infer from that that they'll cheat too. Right? I and think that's, that's a pretty the, good and, formula. But their voters want to be lied to. Understand that. They demand to be lied to. If you said, if, Trump, if a Republican Texas said, look, there's just not very much evidence of any cheating going on in the last election, I'll be honest with you, that that person would get 16% in a Republican primary. Well, they said that, but they said that before they, they, they began this whole voter suppression. When, when Trump won in Texas, the Texas election official said this was a great election. It was perfectly safe. It was perfectly secure. Said the same thing in Florida. Then they realized, my God, we may be in trouble next time, so we got to do something. Right, so right. you're right. They lie. Yeah, and they again, they, they want that. Understand, that's, not, that's, not, that's, that's elementary to who they are. And, and, it, and until people understand that, they're always going to be flummoxed at what's going on. Uh, James, there was a special election in New Mexico this week, which I don't think was a particularly big deal. It's a heavily Democratic seat for the uh, uh, seat of the retiring or the uh, new interior secretary. Republicans, however, privately thought, boy, we're going to make a big deal out of out of police and border. We're going to do defund the police. We're going to do, you know, a porous border. Uh, and the Democrat won by about 30 points, which in itself is no big deal. Biden carried it by 23. If the Republicans had cut that margin in half, I think it would have mattered some because it would have hurt a little bit on recruiting, would have helped them a little bit. But uh, I don't call it a great Democratic victory, but I mean, it's not. But if it, if it had gone the other way, uh, well, I think it would have been bad well, news. I, I, well, I'm going to disagree here a little bit. First of all, the Democrat had a very active answer to the crime charge. And according to press reports, for sure, right, she ran, you know, Law enforcement endorsing her, uh, sheriff. Right. That they, you know, so she didn't take it off the table. She dealt with it forthright. I think it's a little bit bigger deal. I, I mean, after all, well, if the Democrats do well, it's not a big deal. But if they do terribly or don't do very well, it's a huge deal. Well, you're right. He, he, he won by Biden won by twenty three. I think it was about twenty six or something, or something like that. It doesn't matter. If you are going to see at this stage in in a, in a District, you probably can't lose. But if you were going to see a decline in Democratic enthusiasm or, or a swing in Republican enthusiasm or anything like that, you would have you would have detected it here. The fact that you didn't detect it, I think, is a is a, is a good sign. That there was no, you know, that that's a little maybe a slightly slightly better than you would think. I, I think I, I, I don't think it's a major thing. 
But I, I, I don't think it's a, a minor either. I think that atmosphere changes tomorrow, and you, you know, we got a races coming up in Virginia, going to tell us a lot, a lot. Yeah, and uh, the 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 other important point though is that the Republican effort on defund the police and and letting everybody across the border, that that worked in some districts in Florida and the Southwest. You know, actually, including New Mexico, that New Mexico Senate race last year, which was supposed to be a, you know, a walk in the park, uh, was, it wasn't close, but it was closer than it was supposed to be. And some of that stuff worked. The fact that it didn't work, even albeit a heavily Democratic district, uh, you know, may, may, may be a harbinger for, uh, they can't yeah, count on it, that. It, I, I was relieved when I, yeah. when I saw the result. Yeah, if you had woken up on on, uh, on Wednesday morning and said that uh, the Democrat uh, won by fifteen points, you'd have been you'd have been upset. And I, I think the commentariat was expecting a less favorable Democratic result. But it's not huge. Don't spike the ball or anything. But it's the first down. James, the other big Republican push uh, in states and and in Congress is to go and try to outlaw the teaching of the critical race theory in schools. Now, the critical race theory, uh, as we know, basically puts slavery and race at the center of the entire American experience. I personally think that's a bit of a reach, but I think anyone who says slavery and race aren't an indelible part of what uh, has, uh, of, of our American experience uh, is, is either ignorant or a bigot. But what they're trying to do, they're, they're trying to play the race card here, and they're, and they're trying to say, Politicians are trying to say, we can't teach this in schools. It's none of their goddamn business. Tell them to stay out of the school curricula. You know, when you and I in high school were taught about the Civil War, and particularly about Reconstruction, that really, really was wrong. That was really phony history in large part. Uh, and uh, I think today, I don't want Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell meddling, or Tom Cotton meddling in what the curriculum ought to be. It's good for students to learn the critical race theory and also the flaws in it. Well, I'll I, I show you one thing. As it pertains to the state of Louisiana, I am a critical race theorist. <laughs> when, I, when I was growing up, there wasn't anything else that people talked about or politicians talked about. So, I, I, you know, maybe if you lived, grew up in Nebraska, it, it might not apply as much. If you grew up in Louisiana, I'd say I'm a, I, I buy into a large chunk of critical race theory. And then, look, if you look at that, Axios just post poll this morning. It, it shows you what, how integral a part that race is to the Republican coalition. And of course, saying that this is not a racist company, that's what they want to hear because it's a lie. <laughs> okay. And again, they demand lies. So there's nothing wrong with the way that we treat black people. Nothing wrong. They may have made a mistake or two in the past, but they, America corrected that. They demand to be lied to. Yes, of course. Of course, I, it's like I say, I, I guarantee you, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you know, South Carolina, whatever, you name it. I'm not calling a roll here, but it it it, uh, it certainly has been a integral part. It's about almost 98, I don't know what percent of our history it is, but the country's history is pretty big, too. Yeah, I don't think it's just limited to those southern states either, having spent some time growing up in the north. I, I, I do. Race is absolutely central to the American experience. The only criticism that some make is that it's not the only thing that's central to it. But that's okay. Right. It ought to be taught. Right. It really ought to be taught. And uh, those and this has nothing to do 
with uh, well, their- it, yeah, it doesn't. That's why you. This is an academic critical race theory. Was a academic is an academic explanation. Well, that's why you want talking about this. Nicole Hannah Jones. That's exactly the reason you want tenure as far an academic to pursue, which is not the most popular thing for some people. I mean, that's the whole. I think at least that's what I was. So, and uh, I was fortunate uh, in my Civil War history. I had a really good teaching college who thought that ball was a pile of bunk. T.I. Williams used to tell a story about a little girl in Richmond coming home from Sunday school on Sunday and said, Mom, I forget, was General Lee in the Old Testament or the New Testament? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, my grandmother had pictures of his, not only Robert E. Lee, but his horse uh, in the house. So uh, a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the uh, really distinguished New York Times writer and other places who is uh, now going to be on the faculty at UNC and the right-wing you know, legislature basically is trying to block her appointment. And it's and they say it's all about qualifications, academics, bullshit. It's all about race. They they want to be lied to once you understand that. So if it is about race, if you're a Republican, you have to say, no, it's not about race because that's what your voters want to hear. Well, she's a, she, she's a great addition to UNC. And again, tell those goddamn politicians to keep their hands off. Hi, I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and I'm inviting you to join Victor Shee and myself on our newest episode of iGen Politics, where we have a wonderful guest, Alice Betterhalf, the PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff. Victor, do you want to talk about what we'll talk about with Judy? Definitely. I mean, it was such an enjoyable episode. We looked into how journalism has changed over the decade, the decline of local journalism and how it needs to change going forward. Um, We also take on uh, the turbulent times that we live in, how they stack up against the past, and whether we're meeting up to the challenges of democracy going into the next generation. And for those who don't know, Victor is a freshman at UCLA and my co-host of this wonderful podcast. We hope you'll join us and that you'll listen and subscribe. James, we have a fabulous guest this week, Alex Gibney, the producer of the best documentary that I have seen in a long time, Crime of the Century, about the opioid scandals uh, of the last 20 years. Alex, I've watched your documentary twice, and we may have known the broad outlines of the tragedy, 500,000 Americans dead of opioid overdose, but the criminality, criminality of it just gets more and more appalling. Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of villains, but how did it happen? Well, it's a little bit like murder on the Orient Express. Everyone's looking for one culprit, and it turns out there were a lot of people sticking the knife in. But I think it really starts with Purdue Pharma. And Purdue Pharma, back in the late 90s, you know, um, developed a, a time-release opioid called OxyContin. Um, and uh, And what they did was they they rode the wave of a change in the medical establishment, which wanted to encourage people to think differently about pain. Think of it as like the, you know, the, the fifth vital sign. Um, but in so doing, they also tried to convince people that this time release opioid was not addictive, couldn't be abused. Uh, and, and no dose was too high. 
the one to start with and the one to stay with is, is the way they put it. And they even put their hooks into the FDA. They, they found a, a willing character named Curtis Wright, uh, who literally allowed Purdue to write the review of its own application to the FDA. Um, and so they began to sell massive amounts of OxyContin and lots and lots of people started getting addicted to these drugs and they knew it. They knew it very well. Well, we, you know, we should say that you did this in conjunction with the Washington Post, whose reporting starting back in, I don't know, 15 or 16, you know, has just been absolutely, uh, you know, breathtakingly good. Uh, and they were a, a key part of that uh, wonder of your wonderful documentary. That's true. Uh, Alex, we talk about, you know, there's no one villain. There are a whole lot of villains. Uh, there is, I don't know, maybe there are more, but there is at least one hero. He's a bureaucrat. Uh, J Joseph, uh, I'm going to screw up this last Renizzisi. name. Joe Renazizi. Joe Renazizi. And boy, he really is a hero, a Washington bureaucrat. Yeah, so Joe Renazizi is from the DEA, and he's from the Diversion Division. And Diversion is, is the division of the DEA that's designed to look into prescription drugs being diverted for illicit purposes. Uh, and for a long time, he was looking down at the pill mills in Florida and trying to stop the Oxy Highway, people shipping all sorts of OxyContin down to pharmacies in, in, in Florida. But what was really most poignant about Joe, and he had been fighting this battle for many, many, many years, was that he, he ran up against um, a group of uh, distributors who were so determined to keep the drugs flowing that they ultimately passed um, an act in Congress. It was, it was a revision of a, of, of a bill, which made it impossible for the DEA to shut down distributors when uh, the DEA knew that they were flooding communities and likely pill mills. Um, and it was done with, um, it, it, was, it was written, it's one of those awful Washington stories where it was written by somebody who, who came to work for Big Pharma as a result of the revolving door. He had been a DEA lawyer, so he knew exactly with precision how to write the statute. And then it was uh, jammed through Congress. Say, through say, say his name. Yeah, his say name his is name. Lyndon, 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 Lyndon Barber. Barber. Yeah, Lyndon yeah. Barber. Okay, because right. okay, we're going to name fucking names here, all right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Who, who, who I think, Alex, is now a top vice president of Cardinal Health, who is, other, is another one of the great villains in this story. Yeah, so there, there are three big distributors. That's one of the things I learned from the Washington Post um, reporters is that they they really dig into the story post Purdue and what they focus on are the big distributors and there are three Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen and um McKesson. McKesson, thank you. Uh and uh and, and they're the ones who are responsible for distributing to the pharmacies most of the uh drugs that are manufactured by people like Purdue or Johnson and Johnson or Mallinckrodt and others. Um and, and what happened was Lyndon Barber used his expertise from his knowledge of being a, a lawyer at the DEA to fool Congress. And they passed this three page uh, amendment to a bill, which clearly most of Congress didn't read because it was passed by unanimous consent. And that utterly vitiated the ability of the DEA to shut down um, these uh, suspicious, um, you know, orders that were that were being monitored by the DEA by these huge distributors because what would happen is they knew where every pill was going 
So they knew like uh, some small pharmacy in um, Norton, Virginia, it's a town of say a, a couple thousand people and there's a million pills going there. They knew it. So they knew that they weren't for back pain. And that was what Joe was, was reckoning with until he was uh, undercut. And then ultimately they drum him out of the DEA because you know he got in some argument with um, Tom Marino, a, a congressman from, from Pennsylvania. Uh, who accused him of threatening him, which was really a joke, but they drummed him out of Congress. So he's a hero, and, and it's still a hero in my mind, but uh, it, it shows how no good deed goes unpunished. James? So uh, I, I you observe a human condition. I don't think it's going to surprise you to find out that I have severe attention disorder. All right? And I can't watch the bridge on the river quiet in one setting. That's how bad it is. <laughs> I watched this thing for four hours and then only took a break to go to the bathroom. All right. And I got so, and Alex, I got so mad. All right. So when you, you're right, when the Barbara puts this, changes a word eminent to some word, word in a statute, three pages long. Right. You're telling me they don't, they don't have lawyers on congressional staff that somebody didn't read this thing. And it passes by unanimous consent. I mean, somebody's not that hard to to ask somebody, you know, chief counsel on the judiciary committee, read this and tell me what it means. Then Obama signs it. Somebody in the Justice Department says, wait a minute, you, you got to signal this. This is not right. I mean, everybody was asleep at the fucking switch. Everybody. Everybody. That's right. It's just unbelievable. I agree. That and, and they put the one word, you know, th you know. In Marino, and I mean Marsha Blackman. Oh my God! But but you know some some other people don't look great either. No, uh, there's a, there's a bunch of them that don't look very good. Marsha Blackburn, Tom Marino, Chris Dodd doesn't look, look great. very good. <laughs> um, and, um, and and Alex James said, you know, where was the Justice Department? Let's name names. Loretta Lynch was the Attorney General. She knew she had to have known what was going on. She should have known what she was going on. And the White House staff should have known what was going on. They should have. And, and I'm going to turn this back to James. But, you know, when I covered Congress for a long time, Howard Metzenbaum of Ohio was a royal pain in the ass. But he never let this kind of stuff go by. We need a Howard Metzenbaum up there. This is so goddamn maddening. Yeah, it, it is. You know, in a sense, I'm watching. Actually, the... The second part was is equally as good. I may as the first part. And when Sunrise Lee came on the screen, I said, "This poor woman is going to jail." That's right. I just knew it. You That's just right. knew she, you know. And of course, she goes to jail, and the fucking sack was in Switzerland somewhere. That's right. All right. And it just, it, it, I mean, she, all right. She was a hustler. She was trying to make it. You know, she was. She could have been successful at, at a lot of different things, but. I just knew that. I just related to her so yeah. much. And I, I just as soon as she did, you know, you watch a movie, God, he's gonna get he's gonna get shot at the end. I, I, I knew right. I knew she was going to jail. This uh this, I want to talk a little bit about I might have his name wrong, Art Van Z. Art Van Z, a, a a country doctor from the westernmost part of Virginia who who led a crusade to try to take Oxycontin off the market because so what he was seeing was it was ending up in the hands of of, of high schoolers uh, in his community and a lot of kids were overdosing and he raised enormous concerns um, with Purdue and and Purdue just tried to 
flummox them to 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 buy them off. They said, "How about we give you a hundred thousand dollars and you can put it in your community treatment center or whatever." And 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 he wouldn't stand for that. He 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 started a crusade that ultimately led him to testify before Congress. And he goes up before Chris Dodd, who kind of mocks him. Uh, and Chris Dodd had been briefed just prior to the hearing by, of course, Purdue. And Purdue is a, a big company in Chris Dodd's state of, of Connecticut. Um, and so he runs into a, a buzzsaw. But it, it's one of those Mr. Smith goes to Washington moments because Art Van Zee is such a decent man, fond of wearing these thin bow ties, you know, really cares about the 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 patients he sees in his community and he was a he was a one he 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 led a crusade to try to stop it um and and then the forces of uh of money and power um question yeah and uh the the other the interesting thing was this uh i probably have his name wrong but bittendorf the the former head of sales he couldn't stop telling the truth when you interviewed him. Well, once he got caught. Yeah. yeah he got <laughs> caught. Well, I know. He got, right. He, he's he a did, character he got, out of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I mean, yeah. you know, always be closing. You know, so right. the great thing about Alec was he got caught and he flipped. He, he ended up giving, um, um, you know, he ended up helping out the prosecution a lot in this case against right. Insys, which was a company right. that had a, a under-the-tongue fentanyl spray, fentanyl uh, opioid that's about 50 times more potent than heroin. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's designed like a lollipop. There's nothing could go wrong there. Just to put fentanyl on a lollipop. No. I mean, oh, no. Who, who authorizes that shit? Well, and, right? I mean, look, for some conditions, end-of-life cancer pain, it's, it's an extremely valuable drug. But the, but the problem was they were whining and dining doctors and literally bribing them to prescribe it far more widely and to increase and to titrate up to increase the doses. So this is what you see when, you know, all the incentives are bad, when 21st century, you know, turbocharged capitalism is mixed up with healthcare. Suddenly you're not worrying about the profit, the Hippocratic Oath as much as you are about supply and demand. And Alec Berlikoff was this guy who was able to show us just how enthusiastic he was about making a sales pitch. He even had, he color coded doctors according to right. which ones would be most likely to take the bribes that he was offering to prescribe this, you know, high-powered opioid. The yeah, guy who ran that, that thing was, after. yeah, he was terrific. Uh, I think his name was John Kapoor. <clears throat> I mean, he just looked like a sleaze the minute you saw him. He was sentenced to five and a half years in prison. Has he ever gone to prison, Alex? Uh, yes, I believe Kapoor has gone to prison. Berlkoff is in prison and Sunrise Lee is in prison. They're all in prison now. They were delayed somewhat because of COVID. But I think they're all in prison now. Well, you know, Kapoor was just terrible. James, I don't, you know, we'll just go back and forth on this, but we haven't mentioned what happened. What happened to Joe Ranazizi hit the beginning of the end happened because of two of the most high-powered lawyers in Washington, both de at one point deputy attorney generals, Jamie Gorelick and Jim Cole. Explain that story, Alex. So... What happens is Jamie Gorelick is an attorney who's representing Cardinal Health, and she pushed back against uh, Renazizi pretty hard when he issued what's called a uh, immediate suspension order, an ISO, uh, against Cardinal Health because he uh, ascertained that they were flooding a, a community with drugs that, and they should have known better because something was something was going wrong there. Jamie Gorelick pushed back extremely hard, and as a result. 
um, Cole, who was then a high-ranking official at the Justice Department, calls Joe Renazizi in on the carpet. And instead of backing up his investigator, he's like, well, what are you doing, you know, going after this um, esteemed company, which is represented by one of my former colleagues? You know, it, it, was, it was one of those, uh, another one of these very ugly revolving door moments. Uh, and as a result, Joe gets his team together and says, okay, we're going to war now. But as a result, you know, Cardinal Health then starts working with the others to write this or rewrite this statute, which ultimately undermines Joe's power to go after these companies. So what is, what is Cole doing now? I don't know what Cole's I do, doing. No, I know. He's a senior partner. I think it's Austin and Sidley of a big, big Washington law firm. Right. And, and, I bet you, and I bet you he's advising them on pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know, on what they can get away with. Uh, I, I don't know who I their clients are. I don't, but, I don't want to charge him with that. But I but suspect. one thing I can assure you of, James, that both Cole and Gorelick are making tons of money and they have paid no price for that outrage that Alex just described. So, so Alex, I, I see this. And, and you're, and I'm, you, you are, I just have, you know, one of the documentary film, great documentary film of this century. And, I've, you know, been brown politics uh, for a long time. At a pretty high level, Al's run, you know, every bureau that you can possibly run has been covering politics since the 70s. And I'm watching that, and I feel so fucking powerless. I I mean, just like all this shit was going on, and you mean I should have known or something. You know, I was reading the stories, but it it just, it was so outrageous, and I I, I just felt like shit, Maybe some, we should have said something before. I don't know. Did yeah. you have the- Well, look, no, I, I, and I sure don't want to make this film in order to make people feel helpless because there are things we can do. And, you know, two things come to mind. One is pretty big, but the, I'll get to the smaller one first. You know, there's a lot of stock put in these civil lawsuits where, you know, you try to punish companies by suing them and coming up with some judgment. And they pay hundreds of millions of dollars. But for most companies particularly big ones like these, these are traffic tickets. And the big problem is that part of the settlement is that the truth is always buried. The evidence is always buried. So the public never sees the evidence. And we detail a case in, 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 in part one of the series in which, you know, some very aggressive attorneys out of Western Virginia, you know, built a wonderful case against Purdue where they were recommending, you know, very potent felony charges of conspiracy and fraud, et cetera. Um, and they, it goes up to the top of the Justice Department. The Justice Department cuts a deal mysteriously uh, with with Purdue. And as a result, only misdemeanors are, are pled to. Nobody goes to jail. But the, And there's a fine paid. But the big thing is that all the evidence gets buried. And it gets buried for many, many years. Now, we uncovered some of it and put some of it in the film. But hundreds of thousands of people die because that evidence was buried. And that's the problem with these these lawsuits that really need to be investigated. The other thing I would say is, you know, if you look at this whole story, the story of the opioids, what it's really a story about is how wrong we've gotten healthcare. You know, we just assume that let the market work its magic and it'll all work out okay. But that's not really the best way to run a railroad when it comes to healthcare. You know, it may be good for sneakers, but it's not the, the best way for healthcare. So that that's you know, if we start to, to, to figure out how to fix our healthcare system, we're gonna go a long way toward fixing the opioid system. Hey Alex and Jim, the spirit of James's let's name names, I think I'm correct. Purdue's lawyers 
when the Justice Department, the Bush administration blew out that case, I believe were Rudy Giuliani and Mary Jo White. You're absolutely 100% correct. And Mary Jo White is only mentioned once in the film, but honestly, her role, you know, she, she became, she was a hero, you know, in the run up to 9-11 and just after 9-11, many people regarded her as that, but, but she played a very unpleasant role as a kind of um, wing person for, for, for Purdue. And of course, Giuliani was there, you know, really acting as a, a major shill for, for Purdue for some years. We're not surprised by Giuliani. He'd represent anyone. But Mary Jo White has, has a pretty sterling reputation. It's got to be tainted by this. I think she still represents the Sacklers. I believe she does. Yeah. James. So at the end, what uh, you just first sent me over the top is they announce an $8.3 billion settlement and a company, and it hollered out to only got a billion dollars. I mean, I, I, well, I can't it, say that with a straight face. I know. It's even worse than that. So so it looks good that they're going to fine Purdue Pharma $8 billion. But meanwhile, the Sacklers have taken all the money out. So there's nothing left. It's in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So they're not going to get the money. And the only way they can get some of the money, and this is like the cruelest irony of all, is to produce more OxyContin. In order to pay for the damage done by OxyContin, they've got to maximize sales of OxyContin. No, they should have seized everything the Sacklers had. Well, there's a, a bill, there's a bill actually wending its way through Congress. I believe it's called the Sackler Bill to try Good. to um, address, uh, you know, um, owners who siphon off money uh, from a company in order to prevent um, being held to account. God, that, that guy in a deposition. Oh my God. Richard Sackler. Yeah. If you just, I, I, if, if it, I would almost punch my computer. I got so bad. I know. Well, he, he is so arrogant and so just, I think he's definitely on the spectrum when it comes to that, but he refuses to take any responsibility whatsoever for all the lives lost, all the pain caused. And, and that may be, I mean, even today, the Sacklers acknowledge no wrongdoing. It's hard to understand. Alex, have Our any government members, didn't make them do it. Have any members of the Sackler family or executives from Purdue or executives of the Cardinal gone to jail? No. 500,000 people dead and no one's gone to jail except some, uh, you know, former, former dancer and a couple others. That's right. That, and I that's mean, a small company. I mean, that's really the big lesson. Uh, you know, companies are too big to jail. So INSIS goes down because they are not as well connected as Cardinal Health, as uh, as, as Purdue Pharma, and they're not as well healed. Um, and, and also, I mean, they were operating according to the Purdue playbook. It was just the Purdue playbook on steroids or on opioids. Um, and, and, and so they got caught. But I think one of the reasons that, that executives were convicted in that instance, and they were properly convicted, um, was because... I think it was not a, a powerful, well-connected company. As you yeah. saw what happened with Purdue, the, the, the executives skated. They, 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 they pled guilty to misdemeanors, did no time, um, and, um, and, and, and a fine that was a traffic ticket allowed Purdue to continue on its most profitable years in, in, the, in the years after that settlement. Well, I, so you say there's something that we can do. What, what, so if you, what, 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 what can we actually do? What, well, where's our place to concentrate? Let's talk about that. Because okay. I'm just getting so, mad and fucking mad, and I want to get off of well, it. Well, I, I think we really got to examine this whole lawsuit thing in terms of how it doesn't administer justice because it lets people off the hook. And also, I think, honestly, 
this should be a great lesson uh, for us all about how we have to focus on completely reforming our healthcare system. Because the incentives are all wrong. If, if they're profit-oriented incentives instead of the Hippocratic Oath, we're not doing patients proper service. Well, also, Alex, it's a great, you know, the, it's, it's been quite in vogue to talk about, you know, the terrible regulators in Washington and anti-deregulation and everything. This is a case study in the importance of good regulation, not the, not the you know, Lyndon Barbers, but uh, the Joe Ranazizis. I mean, it well, really Joe is. Well, Joe Ranazizis, and, and there were a lot of great people in the Department of Justice. It was the career people who were doing great jobs, but they were, they were let down by the political appointees at the top. And they're the ones who are vulnerable to um, political... But Renazizi's living off a government pension. Right. Lyndon Barber's making millions of dollars that's doing right. the same shit that he did, he did earlier. And, and all that's, that's the problem. The, the bad guys get everything, and the good guys, they get the shaft. Right. Again, the Sunrise leaves in jail, and, and Raymond Sackler is not, is like, God almighty. Sick. Well, and not only that, Marsha Blackburn, who authored that bill that gutted the right. DEA enforcement right. oh. uh, and, and probably caused, I don't know, tens of thousands, of not hundreds of thousands and, of deaths. And a lot of people she was, in Tennessee. She, she was elected to the United States Senate. That's right. And, 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 and her state is one of, uh, you know, the hardest hit in terms of the opioid crisis. But she presented it as if it was a great victory. But she is, of course, a great recipient of campaign money from Big Pharma, particularly uh, opioid distributors. Yeah, when you showed a map, you know, you had a map in the movie that showed what counties, you know, red and, you know, light as you see these maps all the time. And, and the really red part was that Tennessee, West Virginia, Southern Ohio, you know, Western Maryland, that whole Western Virginia. And, and it, what's really odd is, 75% of the people in these counties all voted for Trump. That's right. And they, and they killed him. And, they, and they're buying into, you know, whatever, deregulation audience. That's I mean, right. if they're watching their neighbors drop like flies. And it's interesting, you know, some of the states that escaped the worst of the opioid crisis were states that were far more heavily regulated in terms of opioid prescription writing. Uh, you know, there was kind of a triple check system in, in, in a number of states, but not in places like Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee. You know, so people, nobody likes to hear the word regulation, but sometimes, you know, seatbelts are there to save our lives. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's not a way of taking away our freedom. Some county in West Virginia had 90,000 people and they got 20, 126 million pills over That's five. Right. I, I mean, I, a hundred and twenty-six million, ninety thousand into that. I don't. That's a pretty. That's a big ass number. Well, well and also, so James think, Cardinal sent. I think what was it? Two million pills or doses one year to a little pharmacy in Fort Myers, Alex. Nothing to see here. But that's right. That's nothing to see here, people. Right. That's right. And, and that was a, a poignant story where um, the um, uh, an undercover DEA operative went in and talk to the pharmacist at this CVS in, in Florida that was being supplied by Cardinal. Um, and, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, people were lining up around the block to get their oxy. Uh, and so they could buy it and then head back on up to West Virginia. Um, 
and 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 this woman talked to this uh, the pharmacist. He said, "Well, don't worry. You know, at two o'clock, uh, we stop selling to those people so that we can save a little bit of medication for our real patients." <laughs> man, it, it just I I, I want to thank you as a as a, just an American citizen, man. I, I want to thank you for doing this. I I think it's important and. You know, I'll be 77 in October, and I, I just learned, like, Jesus, I was just, what the fuck was I doing? What was, what was everybody doing while this was going on? I mean, it was right in front of everybody's face. A unanimous vote in the Congress of the United States, not one staff, not where's the, where were the interest groups in, in Washington? You have all these consumer groups, and you have the AMA. I mean, it, everybody was asleep at the switch. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it, it, it it's really a, 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 staggering indictment of quote the system unquote the yes. system the system don't look worth a shit people it really looks bad in this movie and it I, does. alex yeah. i thank you for for having the courage to bring this forward and you know do what we got to do we got to start naming names well i do too and i want to tell all of our listeners out there anyone who hasn't seen crime of the century it is among the m more compelling four hours uh, that you'll ever watch, uh, and you'll be mad as hell afterwards, and hopefully you all want to do something. Alex Gibney, so, thank you yeah. so much. It's been it's Thank you so much, Albert. Thank you, James. So, 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 Alex, on a, I've done a lot in my life, the, the speaking circuit, you know, paid speeches, and they were paying these doctors off with paid speeches. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, they didn't have to give, trust me, they didn't have to give speeches. They got speaking, right. speeches, but they didn't have to give speeches. Right. Right. <laughs> oh. I, I want to see, I don't know, I might have done a speech for Claude Noel somewhere along the way. I got to go look. I mean, obviously, I know what the fuck they were, but yeah. I, I'm very familiar with the racket. <laughs> it was yeah. interesting. All right. Thank you, man. We have gotten a tremendous reaction, James, to our inaugural Sphincter Hall of Fame. I mean, letters and nominations, and it's really, really been incredibly rewarding. And I want to tell the listeners out there that we are going to have our second round of inductees in two weeks. So just look forward to two weeks from now, we'll have our second uh, Sphincter, Ivy League, Sphincter Hall of Fame. And keep those, and, and James, I think, if you agree, next month we can do the Old Timers. In July, we can have the Old Timers Hall of Fame. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, we got to, I mean, yes, Willie Mays got to be in our Hall of Fame. Right, right. <laughs> you know, what's the Hall of Fame without Willie Mays? <laughs> well, the, the letters and the nominations are just terrific. Let me just read one. Greta from New York who writes, she said, I'm a new fan of Al and have loved James since the 90s. I'll ride your coattails anytime, Carville. That's good. <laughs> she lists a whole bunch of names. I mean, they're really good ones, nine good names. And then she asks, does Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who attended Oxford, also Vanderbilt, make the yeah. cut? You know, Greta, no. I'm afraid not. Uh, yeah. He certainly qualifies. He certainly has the, has the qualifications, but he didn't go to an Ivy League school, so we're going to yeah. keep it Ivy League. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Cambridge, Oxford, Stanford, none of that count. Just, none of that. We're, 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 none of that. Out of it has to be one of the eight. <laughs> Absolutely. And we got lots of good, good nominees coming in. Okay, now to a section we love, the questions from our terrific listeners and, and our answers. The questions are always good. Our answers are usually good. 
James, I'm going to combine uh, to one from John in Santa Fe and Susan in Portland, Oregon, because they both basically asked the same thing. John says he's a retired police officer. He's become disgusted with what some police officers have done over the last year. But what should we do? We talk about reform. What kind of reform do we want? Susan says, look, I don't believe in defund the police, but why should police be doing mental health? Why should they be doing homeless? And and doesn't that money have to come from police budgets? They're two good questions. Very. They're two very good questions. And there are any number of people that said that you can, you know, reimagine policing. I mean, policemen will tell you the most dangerous thing they do is break up domestic disputes. And there's a lot of thought that maybe you should have social workers do that. Uh, don't know, but it's something to look into. Also, police have to deal with the consequences of, of inadequate mental health. Uh, so there's good to be said to both. I, I think the big thing is, is you have to have screening. All right. And people generally, if they are bad actors, they, they, they like to share it on social media. So you got to have really good screening. And, and I'm sorry, people, it's, some people said it doesn't help, but I know that it's got to help. And, and that is really good training, uh, really good training. But we're not, trust me, we're not getting rid of the police force anytime in the foreseeable future in this country. So we, we gotta, what we got to do is take the police that we have and, and make them better. Because you're right, this shit in Louisiana, this Ronald Green stuff was just. Yeah, we got to have on that Professor and, and, Harris again from the University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, we really, David Harris. He was, from he, he was yeah, just yeah, terrific because yeah. this is an ongoing. Right. And, and we did, and I think we owe our listeners or subscribers or whatever, I, th- I think we owe them a David Harris level answer yeah. on this because it, it's a huge problem. And we're skimming it, but there are solutions. So let's make a note to get it back. Right, we'll do that. We'll come back to him. James, our second question is from Lenny in Manhattan. Lenny says, look, things did not fall in all of our laps getting into the Ivy League. And a lot of us are very nice people. We all hated Trump and voted for Biden and Harris. If you go to a barrel and only look at the bottom, you're not telling the truth. Yes, we have Ivy assholes, but what you said about Ivies is not a reflection of them, but a reflection of you. I hope you, I hope oh you will cease Ivy trashing and apologize. P.S. Acceptance rate at Harvard is 3% at LSU, 75%. Lenny, I want to tell you, I know you're a good guy. I know, I don't know what percentage, 98, 99% of the people who graduate from those great universities are good people, but you just put your finger on it. The, the acceptance rate at Harvard is 3%. So therefore, when they have assholes, I think they take on a larger yeah. role than other assholes. We're going to keep our Ivy yeah. League Sphincter Hall of Fame. Uh, 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 there's no chance that we're not going to have this, you know, and plus you got a $40 billion endowment. Why does anybody give What I think they should do is start taxing these endowments, any endowment over $5 billion ought to pay an uh, annual tax and redirect the money to historically black schools or community colleges or places that don't have it. So no, I'm not at all moved by your letter. And we're going to keep it exclusive to the Ivy League. Yes. And, you know, and, and we're not letting anybody in that. It's not an all-world yeah. sphincter, all right? It's just not going to happen. Now, you know, it's it's the Nobel Prize will give, you know, they give a lot of Nobel Prizes to Ivy League graduates. Great. I like that. Right. Fine. But that's not what we get. We're not the Nobel right. Committee. We expect more. We're the sphincter we, committee. We expect, we expect more. more. Exactly. Uh, KP right. in Vilnius, Lithuania. Ready, oh, wow. James? 
asked, can Kamala Harris be elected president? In the same world, yes, but we're not living in the same world. Racism, misogyny, I don't think she can be elected president. I don't, you know, Obama was elected president. I mean, I, I, and by the way, the only person since Eisenhower to get 50%, over 50 twice. So, I mean, uh, but, I, mean I, don't, I don't think the fact that she's a, a, a black female is a, a necessary stopping point. It remains to be seen, you know, if she, if she runs for president in 24, if she runs a better campaign than she did in 20, which would not be very hard. Yeah. Uh, agree. I agree. Phil in Chicago says your analysis of the Trump stop the steal bullshit is reassuring and insightful. But in retrospect, credit is often given to Mayor Daley for, quote, stealing, end quote, the 1960 election for Kennedy. What really happened uh, in 1960? And should we treat stealing as positive in any case? First of all, I know a little bit about this. First of all, in 1960, uh, uh, it may well have been it was it was a lot hard. It was a lot easier back then to kind of uh, add votes and take people from the graveyards. And I'm sure Chicago did some of that. But you know what? Republicans matched that downstate. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I absolutely, if you do it, we'll do it. When I was a young reporter in Philadelphia, I said to one of the grizzled old political veterans uh, that uh, big primary coming up. And I said, was well, the machine in Philadelphia going to steal votes? And he said, yeah, they will, but the Delaware County Republicans will match it. Uh, you know, there's a there's an honor among thieves of sorts. So, and also in 1960, I want to remind you, Phil, if Jack Kennedy had lost Illinois, he still would have been president. You know, that did not win the presidency for Jack right. Kennedy. It's a great myth that's endured over the years. Yes. And, and of course, I'm not going to say my wife's from Chicago. I'm not going to say they never cheated in an election. I don't think you do anymore. I haven't for a long time. But you're right. The downstate people, you know, cheat too. And they wouldn't have won. They could have won without it. So it's it's an interesting story. And I'm sure there's some foolishness going on all across the board there. All right, James, this is definitely to you. It's from Dave in Menlo Park picking up on a conversation that we had before. He said, right. truth is precious. Therefore, the ethical practice of journalism, a practice designed specifically to produce truth, is also supposed to be precious. Do political consultants uh, even have red lines? I mean, really, Willie Horton, the Brooks Brothers riots, the Canuck letter, lots of Republicans. Is it ever not a good idea for a mover and shaker to have such a digest? You know, I, I guess I would say that, but you'd expect me to say that political consultants are about there's a whole. There's no self-regulation or anything like that. But I wrote a, a long piece in the Hill about a guy in Ohio, Tyler Furman, who literally called in the FBI to alert him the biggest bribe in the history of Ohio politics. So uh, I've known many honorable people in in my chosen profession, uh, and believe you me. They, the people in it are as hard on the dishonorable people as you can possibly imagine. And, and everybody knows who they are. It's not a very big secret with, within the profession who's, you know, straight shooter and who's full of shit. And, and we have a disproportionate number in my career full of shit people. But, uh, and I, I, I but it's no, that I, the, they're the American Association of Political Consultants, and they do a good job, and they try to have guidelines and, you know, things like that. So uh, it, I, I think the consultants are less the problem than the amount of money that we have in politics. 
Yeah, you know? I agree. Uh, I've dealt with political consultants all my life. That's where you and I became such good friends. Uh, and mm -hmm. I want to tell you, I think there are a lot more good ones than bad ones, but there are really bad ones. And uh, there are bad ones in yeah. journalism. There are bad ones in politics. There are bad ones in business. There are bad ones in, you know, among doctors, as we found out earlier. So. Right. Right. And yeah, I think that, you know, as a group, I mean, I had been in, in the middle of it for, for a while. Everybody, everybody knew who was, you know, who was who. James, next, Adam in Columbus, Indiana. Ask. Oh, right. wow. That's a, that's a yeah. beautiful town. He says, I love the podcast. It seems COVID might have pushed more companies to embrace remote work and make a permanent option for some employees. And I've read stories about people moving, therefore, from blue states, California, New York, to red states, Texas, and Florida. His question is, is there a scenario in a redistricting year, no less, where there actually have been enough population shifts that actually help the Democrats make more inroads in red states to blunt some of the impact from the census and put more states and districts in play? Adam, the answer is yes, it should, and no, it won't. And the reason, yes, it should is because the population patterns in Texas and in, and in, in Florida, actually, and in Georgia and in Arizona clearly are, should help Democrats. But because of gerrymandering, redistricting, and because they control the Republican legislatures, the fix is in and they won't, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think the exodus of people from California has been greatly exaggerated. I think it's for the first time it's not growing, but it's, it's like a stay of... You know, 40 million people and they lost 50,000 or something. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the reports of Cal I've just left California and the reports of its demise have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, I agree. James, finally, Jeff in Kalamazoo, Michigan. This is a good one, James. He says, is it possible to be president if you're convicted of a felony? And what are the odds that Trump would run and get the nomination from his cell? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and, and, and would the Secret I, I, Service be there, James? You, you know, I'm trying to think, is there a provision in the law that says that, yeah, it must be. We'll have to ask Walter yeah. Seth, you know, I'm, I'm scratching my, my brain. And by the way, there are a significant number of people that will vote for him if he's in jail. Again, they, I, I'm telling you, my answer is the correct answer. They want to be lied to. And if he's convicted, 30% of the country will say, all right, I just railroaded him. He's an honest guy. He just tried to change things. <laughs> well, and I think we're going to find out soon, and it's not going to happen. But I just, I must say, I love the, I love the picture of, of the orange man in an orange jumpsuit accepting the nomination from wherever he is, Alan Wood, Sing Sing Penitentiary. <laughs> and again, I, I, I think the Secret Service will have to be there. I don't know where they're going to house them. Yeah, I don't know. We can work out the logistics. I just want to see that son of a bitch go. Well, I'll tell you what, Jeff. We'll give you a definitive answer by all this, uh, all this next week for sure. Uh, yes, sir. We're, we'll, we'll get our, our we're legal. Gonna, team we, we, on we've this got the pronto. best legal eagles in the world, and we'll consult them and keep those keep those questions coming in. My only regret is that there's so many good ones that we can only read a, a fraction of them, but they really are good, and we really appreciate it. Send them in this week. Hey, James, we have heard so many outrages from Alex Gibney today that it could probably last us uh, for the whole year. 
So rather than do my normal outrage, I want to actually praise a couple heroes in, in the world of sports. Mike Krzyzewski, the great Duke coach, uh, it's announced will retire at the end of this season. Mike Krzyzewski has brought not only more uh, success to the game, but really more a character to the game of college athletics. Uh, when he was hired, he was it was a it was criticized by a lot of Dukies because he come from West Point. He wasn't very well known. Couldn't even spell his name, uh, even pronounce it. Uh, and he turned into one of the two or three greatest college basketball coaches of all times. And he did it with great honor, distinction, and character. And I know he's been terrific to our family. And uh, so I want to just say, here's to you, Mike Krzyzewski. Yeah, I, he's a, I've met him on uh, in a number of occasions. We've been, you know, the guy's just a classy guy and, you know, one incredible, to say the least. And in addition to all college basketball, coach a, you know, coach the Olympic team. And, you know, that's challenging, to say, to say the least, to be coach of the U.S. national team. So it, he, he well-deserved uh, caduce, Coach. Absolutely. Pate. The other one I would mention, it is Lou Gehrig Day. Uh, Lou Gehrig was the great Yankee uh, first baseman. And James, there's a wonderful story on the MLB site today that Lou Gehrig's worst year was supposed to be 1938, when he only hit 295 and hit 29 home runs. That was the year that actually, without knowing it, the ALS had started to affect his body. So here's a guy who's stricken by this terrible disease, and he had a terrible year. He hit 295 and 29 home runs. Uh, it is wonderful that we still remember the Iron Horse uh, 80 years after his death. I think he's the only person named after a disease named after him. But most people they call it Rye syndrome or something. Rye was a was a researcher, a doctor. I mean, most of that at, at least at one time, and it's the case. He's the, he's the only person. He was so famous. He was the only person that ever got a disease named after. Not not, not that you would want this shit at all. But it, it's pretty amazing. It's a testament to just Lou Gehrig's cultural power. Well, you know? and he. Um he went out the same way he lived, uh, as a, uh, a man of enormous courage. And he was always content <clears throat> to be, what, the second banana on that great Yankees team because Babe Ruth was such a charismatic character. But, boy, uh, Garrick yeah, yeah, was he, just about as good. You know, remember, he hit behind right. Ruth. <laughs> you couldn't walk Ruth. No. No. Um, no. Okay. You could. Sometimes they did, but that wasn't a bad move. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we really would appreciate it if you check out the links to our recent sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. <laughs>